I vote for art that is accessible. I adore art that's absolutely inscrutable. I have no <laughs> recipe. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Over the past five decades, American artist Jenny Holzer has been engaging in thought-provoking interventions into public space that unflinchingly address politics, power, violence, and vulnerability. The New York-based artist investigates language as both content and form, and she works with unconventional mediums to do this, such as street signage, t-shirts, and light projections, but also sculpture and painting. Her poetic and often minimalist works are extremely impactful, creating a tension between knowledge, truth, and emotion. Last year, Holzer curated an acclaimed exhibition of the work of Louise Bourgeois at the Kunstmuseum Basel. More recently, she received Whitechapel Gallery's prestigious Art Icon Award. She's also the subject of a major solo exhibition on view until August 6th at a preeminent institution in Germany, the K21 in Dusseldorf. On the occasion of this show, which includes many key works spanning her career, I had the immense pleasure to catch up with Holzer, who is easily one of the foremost artists of her generation. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to The Art Angle. Greetings. Hello. So uh, where am I finding you today? I am in Brooklyn. It's relatively sunny. That's nice. It's also sunny here in Berlin, where I am. I was actually just in Dusseldorf recently, about four hours from here, visiting your massive exhibition at the K21 Museum which, you know, spans most of the decades of your career. And so, you know, in speaking to you today, I wanted to use this fantastic show as a sort of jump off point, and I want to get into it in more detail later. But maybe to first jump back into time, since, as I was saying, this show is really so sprawling. Maybe we can go back to the 1970s and revisit New York, where you got your start, where you also still are today. I heard that you originally wanted to be an abstract painter, and I think on the surface this might surprise some listeners, given that many of them may know you best for your text-based works that occur in public space. When did you actually start painting and start your art practice, and what were your earliest interactions with art in general? I painted manically and in earnest when I was quite young, before school, before my limits hit me. My mother was kind enough to give me giant rolls of paper on which I attempted to render the history of the world to include Noah's Ark and the invention of the automobile. <laughs> Incredible. So this was the big start. And you ended up studying at the Whitney Independent Study Program. Is that right? Yes, I was lucky to go there. It's turned out some incredible artists, you among them. As I understand it, that's where you started your Truism series in 1977. And this is a work that, you know, became immediately iconic around New York. It was anonymous postering in public spaces. I'm actually curious, you know, when you were making those in the late 1970s, were you thinking about them as activism or as contemporary art at the time? Or were you kind of always blurring the boundary from its inception? I was hoping to be an artist. I wasn't sure that was going to work. About the truisms, I wanted to write and present what was worrying me or engaging me to others. The Whitney Independent Study Program's reading list daunted me, so I attempted for my 
own benefit to make a miniature Reader's Digest version of it. That was the beginning. One thing I really love about this work is that it really eschews simplicity. And I was thinking about how timeless this piece is, and a lot of the self-understood truths of it still ring true today. I'm curious, do you think that we've lost a certain sense of nuance in our language, or has this sort of polemical way of communication always been a part of human society? I've noticed, among other things, that many don't even use words anymore. They go straight to initials. <laughs> that, <laughs> I like terse, but that bothers me a little that there's so many initials out there instead of words. As addicted as I am to quicker, subtle is better. Bring back nuance. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When it comes to the scene and cultural production in the 1970s and 1980s in New York, which is a scene that has been covered so widely by the media and in catalog essays and in criticism. I wonder, is there an aspect of it that, in your opinion, deserves more consideration? I believe that the optimism and the idealism then has not been reported adequately and celebrated, even though maybe it was short-lived. Interesting. So you feel that at the time there was a lot of hope and not as much anger as maybe it seems in retrospect? At least among, for example, the people of collaborative projects, there was the desire to do what could be useful to people, to proffer that and to put that in as many places as possible to make it accessible. That was lovely. I wanted to ask you about Collab, which stands for Collaborative Projects, Inc., it was a collective of around 60 members who worked together to support one another in making shows and artworks, and Kiki Smith and Walter Robinson were also a part of it as well. In general, collaboration is an important part of your art practice, and it has been throughout the years up until now. Um, for example, local graffiti writers created on-site works at the show in Dusseldorf on top of your work. One of your earliest collaborations was with the artist Lady Pink, who I heard you track down at one point. Could you speak about your painting collaboration with her and how you guys came together? I was delighted to find her then <laughs> in the 80s and again and again over the years. I work with a number of men and I'm happy to do that and I benefit greatly from it. I wanted to work with a woman, so I knew a friend of hers who worked at the pet shop across the street from me. So I had this friend, the wonderful writer Lee, introduce us. What a good day that was. <laughs> and then you went on to work on these paintings together. Could you speak a bit about what's behind them and how that process worked for the two of you? Sometimes I would have an idea for a painting and sometimes she would. I would provide the text once one or the other of us had the image in mind. And then a third woman, my friend Alona Granite, would letter the paintings. She was an artist who worked in the street often and sometimes made part of her living by lettering names of yachts. I love to hear about these collaborations. As you said, there wasn't a lot of women artists rising to fame or getting publicity at that time. You noted just now a certain amount of optimism from that era, but there was also clearly frustration. I have to think of this iconic shirt that you made that said, abuse of power comes as no surprise. It's worn by Lady Pink in a photograph by Lisa Kahana. 
Did you ever feel inhibited in your own art career by unfair power structures? It is not a head start to be female in the art world or <laughs> any other world. Right. And one could say it has become a little bit easier, though we're still far away from any kind of true sense of equity. Was there a particular tipping point for you where the course of your career really changed, where you felt that you could exist in the way you wanted to as a female artist? It is much better now for women, and there are many, many fantastic female artists. I need to belabor the obvious here, but then yeah. think back a little bit about how long it took for the astonishing genius Louise Bourgeois to be recognized. It wasn't good uh, for me. Dan Graham, another fantastic artist, noticed my work, the street posters, and helped me get to Germany to show at Westkunst. That perhaps was the beginning of my official career. Incredible. What year was that in? Oh, God knows. <laughs> Early 80s sometime, whenever Westkunst was. It was a pleasure to meet Casper and have some sense of his doings. Right, Casper Koenig, of yep. course. So it was a couple of years before you ended up back in Europe on the world stage for the Venice Biennial. So this was really another major turning point for you. Looking back at that exhibition, could you explain some highlights from that experience? Uh, surviving it was a plus. <laughs> you know, staggering on from there. Um, I was beat by the time I arrived. I'd had a baby, had done Dia and the Guggenheim and Venice, and there was that matter of my presence there being something of a freak show, the first woman to have a solo show for America. That, that wasn't um, relaxing. I can imagine when you get caught up in these headlines and, and so many artists have to go through this of being the first this and then the first that. At the same time, though, I thought your point about Louise Bourgeois is such an important one because there is this prevailing trend to recognize female artists sometimes when they're almost in their 80s or 90s or even worse, like after they're already dead. And I wonder, do you find this unsettling? Because I do feel that we've been seeing it more and more now in the art market. Yeah, better late than ever, that old saw. But I would prefer that great artists are recognized while thriving and alive. Yeah, definitely. To turn to your process of writing, what can you share about how you produce your texts? And I know that you actually quit writing for a time in 2001. I was happy to quit writing because I'm not really one, and it belatedly occurred to me I would be better off using the text of others for higher quality mm. and for greater range. Also, the visual is easier for me. I think I'm better at it than writing. When I was asked to make memorials, it dawned on me that using the quotes or the text of those being memorialized made sense. When I was asked to do something for the politician's entrance of the Bundestag, I couldn't write to that, so I went to archives to find the content there. It's a habit now of going to archives about my brief and not lamented, or maybe lamented, um, writing career, I would pick a subject, write something on it, and then 
shrink the text to what I hoped were the essentials, banishing adjectives and dreck. The strategy certainly contributed to their timelessness. You've distilled ideas, but some of them were also attached or spurred on by real-world events. Do you remember, for example, what initiated in your mind the statement, abuse of power comes as no surprise? Hmm. Not to be overly dramatic, but life as a female provided some fodder. You have borrowed powerful words from others, such as, for example, the 1996 Nobel Prize winner Wyslava Szymborska. What is your process in finding and selecting texts and borrowing them, and how does it change when a person is no longer alive? When I was in the American Academy in Berlin, I was so happy to meet the frisky American poet Henri Cole who educated me about poetry as best as he or anyone could. This led me to Szymborska, someone I met while she was alive. And then when she wasn't, I was able to work with her group so that I could avail myself of her wisdom and theirs, going to your question about people who aren't alive. Their work locks in their essence, and the work is self-sufficient, then I try not to maul it in any way, shape, or form, perhaps simply to represent it so that others might enjoy it as I have. Could you explain a couple of instances where you installed it, or which lines you pulled out in particular? Her poems are fantastic for projection, because Mm -hmm. she was tremendously smart, but brief and accessible. The thinking was complex, the subjects large, the presentation available, yet poetic, the perfect package. So I've projected her work as often as I can in as many places as suitable. Is it important for viewers to have a complete view of the text that you're presenting? For example, your works with text carved into granite require someone moving up close to them to read them. With your projections against buildings, they may be slightly fragmented by the contours of the architecture. I rely on the viewers to a great extent, when they're interested, to give proper attention and homage to the wonderful writers. I attempt to present the work suitably and respectfully. That said, there is much chance in anonymous public presentations. Sometimes that works better than other times. You know, when you're projecting outside, sometimes it rains (laughs) or snows. Mm -hmm. I always really like the fact that you can return to your pieces and sometimes see something completely different, especially with the LED uh, scrolling works. Mm -hmm. They're really like a living piece that, that sort of is different every single time someone walks up to them. We tried to give a lot, courtesy of the selection of the most astonishing writers we can find, the most feeling ones, and then show it in a way that, well, in the case of the poet Anna Swear or Jim Morska, that's lovely and consonant. 
Yeah, on that note, I'm curious what's on your bookshelf right now, or if you wanted to share a book or a piece of writing that you continually return to over the years. <laughs> the phone that's <laughs> speaking to you is sitting on a book that I haven't read yet that is titled Art is a Tyrant. <laughs> So I'll let you know about that one. <laughs> this is a random selection that's made this tower for the phone. We have, when we cease to understand the world, we have violence in the sacred, we have cremation, and art is a tyrant. <laughs> These sound relatively heavy in topic. Um, they're supporting the phone. <laughs> and in mass. Fantastic. You shifted into text-based work, which we've been speaking about, and put painting down for some years. And you said in interviews before that you failed with painting on your first try. Looking back on it, do you still see it as a failure? Oh, I certifiably failed at painting on innumerable attempts. The paintings in the 60s were atrocious, wouldn't have even made the back cover of a Grateful Dead album, <laughs> charitably put. By the time I got to RISD, I made some perhaps tolerable, but no better than tolerable, abstract works, and once painted my entire studio, floor, ceiling, glass, everything, a rather lovely light blue. That was okay. It involved space, had a little mystery, had the touch of the hand. But that was a, a lone victory. I started to fail again. I went to the truisms. Do you think about your text-based works, especially the ones that maybe cover the wall, floor to ceiling, as they do at K21 or are projected? Is there something painterly about those? Like, are you still using painting to think through some of the challenges that you have when you're working through those works? There's something painterly or at least visual on a good day or night for a projection. The light can be mysterious and engaging and tender approachable, illuminating, to be corny. The LEDs often tint the air. That seems artistic, right? <laughs> Certainly. Yeah, I mean, painting has so much to do with light, and that is one of your main mediums, yeah. To turn to, like, the paintings that you started making, I think it was in 2004, the redaction paintings, which, you know, are also quite luminous. They're, at least the ones that I saw at K21, they have this gold flecks all over them and they're, they catch the light when you walk by them. The content of them is incredibly unsettling. They're redacted files from the beginnings of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think what struck me so much about them is that of course, you, it was required a lot of research and investigation to dig these files up, but they actually are things that are in the public domain. Could you speak a bit about why you felt that it was important to render these you know, public files into painterly form? And I'm also curious what immediate reactions were, especially in the U.S. at that time. As many people were, I was confused and concerned by the invasion of Iraq. I wanted to know more. So I went to the National Security Archive and others to obtain information about the invasion and what preceded it, what was as current as possible. Then I saw 
many redacted pages and was encouraged in a way because these pages resembled Russian supremacist paintings, some of my all-time favorite works. So I had in one go content I wasn't aware of and that might be of interest to others, and I found images of redactions that looked like classic Russian paintings, and I had the subject of secrecy. And you have this sort of collaborator in these paintings, which is the person who had the permanent marker that is Xing all of this stuff out, right? I think it's so interesting in those works how varied some of these markings are. Did you take an interest in that as well? I much admire many people who redact, who have great design senses, who don't simply black it out, but who give it their all. It definitely adds to the unsettling quality of it because the idea of someone, you know, especially when these are a little bit more artistically done, stamping out the truth of something, it has a different kind of tonality for sure. Many are thoughtful and careful and give a gift <laughs> of their hands. It makes you kind of wonder what they're thinking at the time as well. Many were thinking. It's clear it's not just an activity. In general, America, in all of its contradictions, violence and bad acting has been a place of long-term investigation for you. You recently did this project on these mobile trucks about gun control. Could you speak a bit about that? In the early 80s, I was able to work with a group of people to put content on a truck with an electronic sign uh, for the then presidential election. More Recently, we've turned to smaller trucks with electronic signs that can drive most anywhere and present most anything. Typically, they're used for advertising campaigns. We've employed them with content against gun violence or sometimes uh, to get out the vote, to practice democracy. These experiments have been gratifying, and I've even written a few very short text for them. <laughs> I wonder how you think about, you know, breaking down these strange gates that are built up around the art world. I think that project that you just described and many of your other works, I think what's so vital about them is that they really don't stay confined to institutions and to the sort of niche art world public. And a lot of us in the art world have forgotten the wider public that, you know, we should be speaking to and serving and working with. How important is accessibility to you when it comes to people seeing and viewing and understanding your work? I don't know that the truck projects are art or need to be. I hope the content that they drive around is helpful to people somehow. You know, this material is an alert, at least. Some of the projections, again, I don't know that they need to be titled as art for the person who comes across them. I'm glad that they found a home in the art world, but mostly they're for people who are walking down the street at night and find them. In that sense, I mean, sometimes I think that the definition of art in the art world can be much too strict. There's a certain kind of elitism and class-based thinking baked into how we see things as art and not as art in the whole Western canon in general. I 
vote for art that is accessible. I adore art that's absolutely inscrutable. I have no um, recipe. <laughs> it's a big buffet. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your work, like, for example, the piece Lustmore, there's obviously this hurdle that has come up for artists who make work that, you know, deals with violence or tough topics. You know, this idea of the trigger warning. It's a relatively new phenomenon. While it may be important, could you speak about how you think about art needing to go to these tough and difficult places? What is your thesis about art's imperative to speak to some of these things? Certainly all artists don't need to go there or shouldn't. Mm. Artists should follow his or her instincts and druthers. About trigger warnings per se, I think they should be used sparingly as most of the danger in the world is not from art. And I don't know that I would want a trigger warning on Goya, for instance. That said, of course, I don't wish people to be harmed, insulted, wounded by what they see. But art's not the main demon here. I would say conflict, murder, rape, and that assortment are. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. You know, it can get a bit misconstrued. Art is not really perpetrating violence in some cases. It's just speaking about it, and it's really the violence that maybe we need to think about how triggering that can and should be something as a topic we need to deal with. Ignoring violence is worse. I was very struck by this Lusmord piece. It's an arrangement of bones, and it speaks to the atrocities of rape that occurred after the fall of the former Yugoslavia. Is that right? The Lustmord piece started in response to the war in the former Yugoslavia when the Süddeutsche Zeitung asked me to do something for their magazine. I couldn't think of what to do, and then this war told me when women and girls and some men were targeted, raped, and killed. Why this work of art struck me so much was because I also learned something that I didn't know, which was that up until around the time when this war broke out, these kinds of atrocities of war were not even considered as war crimes. Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton conspired, as did many others, to make rape a war crime, thousands of years overdue. You've maintained a clear position throughout your career to make work that empathizes with others, such as this piece Lusmore, for example, or the work that like advocates for the experiences of voices that may not be your own. This is a very crucial aspect of your art practice. And it's interesting to just note that there is another sort of prevailing attitude these days that one should only speak from their very specific position in society or from their very specific subjecthood. I wonder, do you ever feel that this should be challenged, the idea that one cannot make work about others, especially when it's empathizing with others? Or should artists really, you know, stick to what they know, quote unquote? Of course, it's helpful and important to work from what you know. It would be a mistake not to. That said, it would be a great loss, I think, not to work about what you learn from and about uh, and observe from others. Yeah, I mean, uh, we need more empathy in society, not less of it, for sure exploration, and I'll resort to saying learning again and feeling appropriately and representing as well as one can what affects everybody is a goal, at least. 
In terms of, you know, creating large affects, you've worked with some incredible architecture around the world. And architecture is an interesting one because a lot of the time it is usually men who have made it. It has this kind of hyper-masculinity in its triumphant scale. And I think that your work very brilliantly like deals with these interfaces. I wonder, is there a dream location or an upcoming project that you're working on that you could share for your LED works or your light projections? It has been engaging, if sometimes intimidating, to join architects in their masterpieces. I love space. I love space shaped by someone else. Then I try to fill it. Here's some hubris, perhaps. I would like to work more in Washington. I'm not sure that would do any good, but it would be quite the experiment. There's a hint of a prospect of doing something on the mall, perhaps a projection on democracy. I might faint in the process of doing that, but I'd like to try. What incredible timing that could be with the election coming up next year. I fear that's true. (laughs) What is concretely coming up next for you? I am stewing about a show that's coming up and now less than one year at the Guggenheim. Apropos of working in fantastic architecture, it will be an incredible joy to return to that building. And when was the last time that you had your work there? 1989, so it's been a while. What we hope to realize at the Guggenheim this time around is mm-hmm. an LED that will complete the spiral that will go all the way around up to the top. And next, I have to determine what to put in the bays, if anything. Sometimes those bays are good left empty. <laughs> um, to be all about potential and to be about the architecture. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'll have to figure out what to put on the sign. I've been messing around with some AI bots, so maybe the bots will write for me. I wanted to ask you about that. Of course, there's been this proliferation of generative text and a lot of fear around it as well. What do you make of these massive transformations that have been taking place in the field of language, so to speak, in the past couple months and year? It's fascinating. I've already succumbed to it, and it's utterly terrifying. I think the warnings are legit. Someone else was saying to me recently, it's not really inherently evil or good. It's just maybe what humans will end up doing with it before it becomes a runaway technology itself. Yeah, consider who made it. (laughs) One could say it's a bit of an ominous time for language. Do you feel that you're inundated with information? I've read somewhere, you know, you're a fan of Twitter and I know you're doing a lot of reading. And of course, I'm sure you're paying attention to a lot of these things. How do you quiet a distracted mind in a time like this? Let's see. I was interested when there were fake Twitter accounts, deep ones such as Jenny Holzer Cat. I don't spend much time there, (laughs) I have to say. But yes, we are awash in language. It would be good if it were reality-based, helpful, and truthful. Do you think that it has become also more coherent in some ways or more urgent at the same time, like strong, impactful words, short statements such as yours? 
I can't make an argument for coherency, either that at large or mine. I wish for it. You have researched into some grim subject matter. And so, you know, to close out, I wonder, what is bringing you a good sense of optimism at the moment? Hmm. People like Greta Thunberg. She's a marvel. Let's have hundreds of thousands, millions more on point. Yeah, in general, just the younger generation. Here's to their clarity and purpose and success. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for your time today and for being with us on The Art Angle. I hope you have a chance to get through that stack of books in the next weeks or months. I'll let you know about that art is a tyrant. Yes, please do. I'm waiting for my book review. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Thanks. Take care now. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us while you're there. It helps others discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Carolyn Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.